This case has been turned over to our library investigations officer, Mr. Bookman. Bookman? The library investigator's name is actually Bookman. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And with this particular episode, it is the third episode I am devoting to uh, the actual... Um, texts within the collection for past midnight so um if you are just tuning into this please note that i have already released a, a review for the first story in the collection langoliers um a review of the uh abc tv miniseries uh the langoliers um a review for secret window secret garden which is the second collection uh second story in the collection um along with uh the secret window review which was a movie starring johnny depp based on secret window secret garden um which takes us to the third uh novella in this collection the library policeman now this is a story that i don't have a memory of i've only read it once before and i remembered that there was an insect creature now in the introduction king revealed that the library policeman sprung up from his son owen who was afraid to go to the library for fear of the library police king drew upon his own relationship with the library police to fully realize the novella which was written around the time of christine because as he started to write this christine christine as he started to write this christine wound up coming out now before i get any further let me read the wikipedia entry so that i have a basis upon which i can build my analysis sam peebles is asked to give a speech to the rotary club an office assistant, Naomi Higgins, directs him to the public library to check out two books that might help with speech writing. In doing so, he meets Ardelia Lortz, the librarian. He converses with her about the bad selections she has put in the children's library, such as scary posters of flinching and screaming children, music such as Ozzy Osbourne and Guns N' Roses, and books like Flowers in the Attic and Peyton Place. He checks out two books with the warning that they must be returned or should beware the library policeman. Naomi eventually informs us that Ardelia Lortz is not living and is not spoken of anymore. Through a series of events, we are introduced to Dave Dirty Dave Duncan, a former lover of Ardelia's. Sam finds that Ardelia is not a person but a being which feeds on fear, and that Duncan was sometimes an unwilling companion conspirator in helping her feed from the fear of children. He also finds that Ardelia had died in 1960 after killing two children and a local deputy sheriff, John Power. She is now back, and Duncan believes she seeks revenge and a new host. The library policeman turns out to be a recreation by Ardelia of a man Peebles had run into at a child, as a child at a local library who had raped and threatened him. The library policeman, however, is not just a recreation, but also an embodiment of Ardelia who sought access to Sam as her new host. Dave dies defending Sam and Naomi from Ardelia. Sam and Naomi eventually manage to defeat the library policeman slash Ardelia only to discover at the end that Ardelia has already attached to Naomi. Sam removes Ardelia from Naomi's neck and destroys her under the wheels of a passing train. Analysis. The first thing that struck me is that in the 25 years that have passed since the novella's publication, if the same characters followed their motivations now in 2015, then Sam would never even have to go to the library. 
In the story, he is drafted to speak at a meeting about the importance of insurance, and it's recommended that he go to the library to find books about speech writing. Now in 2015, Sam will just have to hop online. Regardless, for a novella about a monstrous library policeman, the setup is a little bit left field. Of all of the ways that King can position his main character to enter the library, he decides that an acrobat breaking his neck, which causes an insurance salesman to take his spot at a function so he has to write a speech and get help from library books, is the best option. I imagine that the opening line popped into King's head and he followed the thread from there. Regardless, it's a windy road to have to follow to get to the library. Um, when Sam arrives at the library, he establishes an ominous tone while hinting at a later reveal in the novella, which takes place in the um, paperback edition on page 395. He didn't like it. It made him uneasy. He didn't know why. It was, after all, just a library, not the dungeons of the Inquisition. Just the same, another acidic burp rose up through his chest as he made his way along the flagstone walk. There was a funny, sweet undertone to the burp that reminded him of something, something from a long time ago, perhaps. He put a tum in his mouth, began to crunch it up, and came about abrupt decision. Okay. Um... King works the theme of the collection into the novella as the past and the present seem to fold together into one perspective as Sam heads up the stairs to the library. Though 40, he feels as though he's in fourth grade. His mind pops with random observations that he can't make sense of but harken back to his childhood. Now, King has always been a personal writer. His thoughts, memories, opinions, fears, observations have always flowed out of him into his books. His novel, It, was the end-all, be-all examination of childhood, and within those pages, he erected an image of the library as a place of safety and light. Here, however, he takes the opportunity to render the library with its looming rows and crypt-like silence as a place of nightmares, and so he begins to do so on page 398. What Sam Peebles felt was a sense of wrongness. You know, and he, he had written of, you know, the corners of the lobby being filled with gloomy webs of shadows. It was as if he had done more than step through the door and cross a foyer. He felt as if he had entered another world, one which bore absolutely no resemblance to the small Iowa town that he sometimes liked, sometimes hated, but mostly just took for granted. The air in here seemed heavier than normal air and did not seem to conduct light as well as normal air did. The silence was as thick as a blanket and cold as snow. The library was deserted. You know, I mean, and he continues to just describe this library in perfect detail, and, and you feel the menace um, found within, you know, each each dark shadow um, found within the corners and, and just the, the danger present in the looming aisles. The image, um, I'm sorry, the, the first mention that we, we get of the library police um, happens on... Um, page 401 where king writes it showed a dismayed boy and girl surely no older than eight cringing back from a man in a trench coat and gray hat the man looked at least 11 feet tall his shadow fell on the upturned faces of the children the brim of his 1940s style fedora threw its own shadow and the eyes of the man in the trench coat gleamed relentlessly from the black depths they looked like chips of ice as they studied the children, marking them with the grim gaze of authority, capital A. He 
was holding out an ID folder with a star binned to it, pinned to it, an odd sort of star with at least nine points on it, maybe as maybe as a dozen. The message beneath read, Avoid the library police. Good boys and girls return their books on time. The image presented in the poster, the trench coat, the fedora, the image must be one that King relates to strongly, as he uses it again in the collection Hearts in Atlantis, um, specifically the, 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 the novella um, Low Men in Yellow Coats. King has done a masterful job at presenting us with a dread-filled tone, so when there's a voice behind him, we have every reason to be afraid, because King has convinced us that we should be afraid. We are introduced to our librarian, Mrs. Lortz, who completely unnerves Sam, as though she is, even though she's pleasant. You know, during their conversation, King names drops Robert McCammon's novel Swan Song, which is a nice little shout out to a fellow horror novelist. Swan Song, for those of you who don't know, is a high octane version of The Stand. If you like The Stand, you'll probably like The Swan Song. From what I remember, it's more action packed, weirder, and more supernatural. It has a Randall Flagg type villain. Um, and one of his other books, Boy's Life, is an all-time favorite of mine, and nobody has yet to capture the magic of childhood better than he did in that book. And that includes Stephen King uh, with It. As Sam goes about his life, he continually gets threatening phone calls from Lortz, who warns him of the library policeman. Sam interacts with characters who, with a character who takes recycling down to the process center, a character who battles addiction. Um, and that would be Dave. Uh, famously, King in real life had always battled addiction. Thankfully, he won. And his first sober book will be The Excellent Needful Things. I'm not sure of the timetable when The Library Policeman was written, but AA features prominently here. And I don't know the specifics of the progression of King's battles with addiction or if he had attempted AA before he finally kicked addiction to the curb, but the inclusion speaks to the inner struggles of the author. When Sam returns to the library, he discovers that it's completely different. The physical structure to the building, the lighting, the posters, the atmosphere, all completely different. It's a wonderful, if not unexpected, twist. The librarian assistants claim never to have heard of a Mrs. Lortz, though one admits that the name sounds familiar. The inclusion throws a blanket of menace and dread over the previous chapters. The reader realizes that Sam had entered a library that doesn't exist, spoke to a woman who doesn't exist, and this same woman has left him threatening messages on his answering machine. But she does exist, at least in some capacity, because Naomi had recognized the name, and Naomi's mother reacts when Sam asks her. With Lortz, King begins to spin a web of mystery all around us. King then starts to, um, you know, Stephen King us, uh, taking Lortz and turning her into the boogeyman, which we see on page 451. Toward midnight, his thoughts turned to Ardelia Lortz, and that was when things really began to get bad. He began to think of how awful it would be if Ardelia Lortz was in his closet or even under his bed. He saw her grinning happily, secretly, in the dark, wiggling fingers tipped with long, sharpening nails, her hair splayed about all around her face with a weird fright wig. He imagined how his bones would turn to jelly if she began to whisper to him. With the morphing from Lortz into the library police, now adorned with characteristics that hadn't existed previously, King begins to pull the past into the present. 
The villain of the piece merges with the true villain from Sam's life, one that had brutalized him as a child. His investigations into Ardelia Lortz result with cryptic warnings to leave it alone, but because Sam is the main character of a horror novel, he must continue further. When he calls Dave, Dave breaks down into hysterics at the name of Lortz, and Naomi picks up the phone and condemns his actions, Sam's actions. It's a curse of sorts, and our main character is clueless as we are. And on page 464, he writes, I think I met a ghost. In fact, I think I met a ghost inside a ghost. I think that the library I entered was the Junction City Library as it was when Ardelia Lortz was alive and in charge of the place. I think that's why it felt so weird and off-kilter. It wasn't like time travel or the way I imagined time travel would be. It was more like stepping into limbo for a little while, and it was real. I'm sure it was. Sam has realized that he's stumbled into something that logic cannot explain. Because reality cannot offer up any explanation, he continues his quest to discover the truth, though we're getting a growing sense that the truth will be un his undoing. And then we get our first appearance of the library policeman who bursts into Sam's home as more memories from his past burst into the surface. The sweet taste he identified earlier in the text is revealed to be lead, red licorice. The licorice continues to pop up throughout the story, serve as a sensory touchstone of the Sam's molestation. The rape is distilled through a clear image of red Twizzlers and their sugar slimy taste. The presence of the library policeman brings about a torrent of memories which threaten to blow down the doors behind which Sam has locked them ages ago. The description of the policeman is rendered in rich, terrible detail from page 466 to 467. His body was wrapped in a trench coat, the leaden color of fog at twilight. His skin was paper white. His face was dead, as if he could understand neither kindness nor love nor mercy. His mouth was set in lines of ultimate passionless authority, and Sam thought for one confused moment of how the closed library door had looked, like the slotted mouth in the face of a granite robot. The library policeman's eyes appeared to be silver circles which had been punctured by tiny shotgun pellets. They were rimmed with pinkish-red flesh that looked ready to bleed. They were lashless. And the worst thing of all was this. It was a face that Sam knew. He did not think back, sorry, he did not think this was the first time he had cringed in terror beneath that black gaze. And far back in his mind, Sam heard a voice with the slightest trace of a lisp say, come with me, Thun, I'm a policeman. The scene in the kitchen justifies the novella's inclusion in a collection about the fluidity of time. While he might have had 39 birthdays, Sam is reduced to a four-year-old. Though he might be cowering in the kitchen in a house in which he pays rent, he pleads with the policeman with a childish vulnerability and silently pleads for the janitor to help him. Time and space are bending to a singular point that is marked by childhood molestation. And though Sam is warned by the library policeman to stop asking questions, it doesn't stop him from researching the mysterious Mrs. Lortz. He pursues him sorry, he peruses the gazes the Gazette's records and realizes that in Mr. Price, the current head librarian's recounting of the library's history, there has been a gap that would account for the inclusion of Lortz, and this gap leads Sam to believe that Price is concealing the truth. Naomi helps Sam find Dave who gives up the goods when it comes to Lortz. And if you're listening to this and wondering why I haven't mentioned the novel It yet, I'm going to get to that later, trust me. If you're wondering why I just mentioned It, I'll get to that later, trust me. During Dave's story, King again speaks about time 
in this case, uh, through the belief system of AA. In AA, they talk about folks who have one foot in the future and the other in the past and spend their time pissing all over today because of it. Sometimes it's hard not to wonder what might have happened if you'd done things just a little different. The story then gets more and more intense, culminating into the reveal of Ardelia as an insect-like creature whose mouth clamps over children's eyes as she sucks the physical manifestation of fear from them. Dave's story gets more and more horrific as he details Ardelia's changing shape and his ability to break from her. Did I say inability or ability? I meant inability. Uh, the story's logic wavers here. When Dave tells Sam that Lortz wants to be Sam and gets even weaker when he says that it's because Sam has a library policeman of his own. From a subtextual standpoint, it works. It's, you know, that, that an abuser is seeking out this victim because she senses that he has been abused earlier in life. But to put it up to the front... The logic doesn't really hold. The story really falls apart when King makes the decision to spell out in gruesome detail young Sam's rape. It's an awful scene. It really is, and it's completely unnecessary. By this point, the readers have pretty much figured out what has happened to Sam as a child. We don't need to know the play-by-play. Until now, the novella was working fine as a tale of recurring molestation and the denial of childhood abuse. But with this, it all comes apart. It's an ex exploitative scene, and it's a perfect example of how less is more. The novella is sliding off the rails fast, and there's nothing that King can do about it, it seems. Again, he drags the subtext to the forefront with the red licorice. Until now, it's been a detail. Now, it's the main idea. It's the object that Sam will use to defeat Lortz. Now, King has used objects to defeat supernatural characters before, it's not about the objects, really, but the belief that charges them. Here, when Sam beats the library policeman with the books, the books aren't causing it pain. The belief behind the force of those books is what's causing the library policeman pain. Sam defeats the monster by jamming its proboscis with red licorice. What's left of it attaches itself to um, Naomi, and again, Sam uses the red licorice to pull it out. The end is so over the top, it doesn't work in a novella. In a book like It, where things go crazy, it works because King has managed to convince us over the thousand plus pages. Here, however, he has less than 200, and there's an immediate shift in the story, right when Dave finishes his tale. Everything from that point forward is an unearned ending. It would have been like if the conclusion to Secret Window ended with sparrows rushing in and eating John Shooter. It works in the dark half because King had more time with it. First, Dave finishes his story and proclaims that Ardelia wants to be Sam. Nothing that had occurred ever pointed to that direction. It's a leap of logic. It's as if King knew where the direction was headed and didn't know where it was going to get there. So he has a character state something that just comes out of the blue. And the magic red licorice itself is too magical for a short story. Sam suddenly understands that the red licorice will work against her. How does he arrive at that conclusion? The problem is, is that he doesn't, and we're just supposed to go along with it. Until the point Dave finished his story, this was a tale of victims. When the victims suddenly become heroes, the abrupt shift nearly breaks the reading experience. It's too much of a shift too soon. With the library policeman, I think that King should have chosen one of two options. One... Expand the novella into a novel. Give it more time and play up the more fantastical elements so that the conclusion feels justified. Then, 
he would have told the redemptive story about defeating child abuse. Or shorten it a little and don't give us the hero ending. Cut out the exposition and some of the backstory and leave more to the reader's imagination. In a novella, the expository backstory serves up the final act. Rework it so that doesn't motivate our characters into action, but rather to show how horrible the monster is. This option would have to go darker, and without Sam's growth into a hero, he would have to remain a victim. But I think that one of those two options would have worked better for this particular story, but this particular length, I just feel like it's too much to do with such short a time, and it just, like I said, the ending comes and it just does not feel earned at all. So now I just want to talk about the corruption of the innocent here. Um, because the crux of the novella hinges on the rape of Sam as a child, King knows that he has to hide the corruption in plain sight throughout the story. Even though Sam doesn't remember, um, it doesn't mean that it's gone, it's just buried deep. And King recreates the sensation of having to exist in a world where something horrific had happened to you as a child, a memory that you don't remember, but one you can't escape. King continually presents the corruption of innocence throughout the text, beginning with the acrobat. The acrobat symbolizes the circus, a place of child's entertainment. The novella begins with the acrobat after having gotten too drunk, breaking his neck. First, the fact that he breaks his neck is enough to drive home the message, but by making him drunk establishes that there's a messiness, an uncleanliness to the corruption. Furthermore, the acrobat's name isn't a magical stage name meant to inspire wonder. It's the amazing Joe. The magic of childhood is stripped away. With this, he isn't some dazzling and mysterious performer, but instead just a man, a drunk who fell off of a wire. We're then given an image of Little Red Riding Hood in the library, and this particular poster focuses on the terrible teeth of the wolf pretending to be the grandmother. It's a frightening, malevolent image within the children's section of the library. Similarly, there's a horrifying poster of a child being abducted with a warning, never take rides from strangers. When Mrs. Lortz is introduced, the idea of the friendly librarian is thrown out the window, and instead we're given the pleasant threat of Mrs. Lortz, who Sam thinks at one point is going in for a kiss. Whether he knows it or not, his childhood attack is bubbling to the surface. The library itself is even referred to as a splinter jammed deep into Sam's buttock, which is pretty on the nose, but nevertheless an effective example of how King corrupts all aspects of the world around Sam. And as I stated earlier, the red licorice is the distillation of the rape. It's the sensation that first bubbles up to the surface and grows fast um, throughout the novel. First, as he enters the library, he has the strange taste flood his mouth. Later, he has a dream of Ardelia Lortz running after him with red licorice in her hand. Later, he specifically remembers the taste of red licorice, even though he tells himself he's never once had it. The red licorice is a candy, which should be a positive memory from childhood, but for Sam, it represents his own rape. Ardelia herself is the corruption of the innocent. His rape isn't the only example in the novella. When Dave tells his tale, it's clear he's under a spell. His alcoholism is represented by his lust for Ardelia. And Ardelia's power is intertwined with sex. The corruption of Davy, the death of Mr. Price, all of that comes from her power to seduce Dave and uses her feminine wiles to cause Mr. Price's heart attack. You know, just look at how Ardelia relays the death of Mr. Price on page 498. I hugged him, she said. I give him special hugs, Davy. You don't know how, you don't know about my special hugs, and if you're lucky, you never will. 
I got him in the stacks and put my arms around him and showed him what I really look like. Then he began to cry. That's how scared he was. He began to cry his special tears, and I kissed them away. And when I was done, he was dead in my arms. You know, I mean, referring to them as special hugs speaks of molestation. I mean, for a character who runs a library whose main clientele is children, you know, her sex is everywhere. It's just wrong. And her story time with the children is ripe with corruption. First, there is the secret that the children must keep of the posters which are hidden for adults. The literal object of corrupted youth is hidden by the abuser. Furthermore, when children get too worked up, she hides them away and physically abuses them, sucking from them the fears that she's instilled within them. In the metaphor for child abuse, the abuser is getting off in the fear that she instills within her victims. And then now I want to talk about the thematic continuation from It. So earlier I had mentioned It <coughs> and said, if you're waiting for me to talk about it, just wait. I'll get there, I promise. And this is It. Because there are a lot of similarities between this novella and It. So much, in fact, that I think that a lot of readers out there believe that Lortz is either a version of the spider from It or a similar creature. And I think that the truth lies in between. Now, spoiler alert for the novel It, but in the conclusion of that novel, it's revealed that the creature is a she who is about to give birth. Ben Hanscom's role in the final pages is to kill each spider egg before it hatches. It's never confirmed if he succeeds in killing all of them or not. And the reason I say this is because on a thematic level, some of those babies survived. It makes sense that the library policeman is published after the events of It, because this creature takes on certain traits that readers have seen from the shapeshifting clown. Because it doesn't operate on the same scale, or doesn't appear to have the same cosmic stature, it's in keeping with the thematic idea that it's a baby, a child. We'll see thematic children of the spider in Rose Matter and again in the Dark Tower. Now, I'm not stating that the eggs hatched, and these insectile creatures are literally the spawn of the villain from It. I'm looking at this purely from a thematic level. But still, the thematic idea that these creatures are the conceptual children of the spider fit very well into the jigsaw puzzle of King's universe. In many ways, the library policeman feels like a dark sequel to it. There are the repressed memories. There's the alien insectoid uh, shapeshifter. The library takes center stage. Um... Ardelia Lortz's eyes shine like nickels, which can't help but make you think of the deadlights, which was the spider's true form. You know, her eyes are also described as Grey, a surname that Pennywise took for himself in the pages of It. Ardelia Lortz arrived in town in 1956, and two years later she became head of the library, which would make it 1958, which was the year of the summer in which the losers confronted It. Like the clown, Lortz killed children. Lortz operates on a cycle that haunts the town, just like Pennywise. From a thematic standpoint, Ardelia represents the first of the insectile creatures to come to appear in a Stephen King novel after it. If Ardelia is a thematic child, like a child, she's bolder than her parent. Where Pennywise hid in the sewers, Ardelia walks among the humans. If it was a Lovecraftian entity that crashed to Earth from beyond time and space, then it would stand to reason that its children, those born on Earth, would be less than godlike. Now, I've already mentioned the corruption of the innocent, 
Uh, but this is yet another link that ties the, no the novella to It. All of It serves as a metaphor for child molestation. Except in the pages of It, with the exception of Bev's story, the molestation is symbolic. Here, however, it's literal. The children are still the monster's focus, but rather than ripping off their arms, this wand wants to corrupt the purity and the safety of their imaginations. Now, everything that I've stated sounds so familiar that the creature here and the creature from It might as well be the same, but they're not. They're not. I mean, first, Ardelia is in Junction City in 1958, and the clown is in Derry at that time. As powerful as It is, it's very much a Derry-based entity. I don't believe it was in two places at once. And also, the clown in It could shapeshift into whatever it wanted. Lortz, on the other hand, is an entity that burrows inside its prime victim and uses their body as a host. So similar, yes, but the same, nope. So now it's come time to Stephen Kingisms, the tricks and traits and tropes um, that you'll find from Stephen King's story to Stephen King's story, and the first of which is the library. Uh, the library plays a prominent role in It, like I stated, which also includes an insectoid creature. Number two is uh, the relationship between the circus and insects. Um, so in it, we had a clown um, and a spider, and here we have an acrobat and a spider beetle uh, insect creature. Number three is an adult character forgetting the horrors of his childhood, which again is, is very similar to it. Number four, we have a children's rhyme. Here, Sam has a little children's rhyme about the Quaker meetings, and we have seen the children's rhyme before in Tommyknockers. Number five um, is the character's hair turning white. Margaret White's hair turns white in Carrie. Uh, Sam's does here as well. Um, in the It movie, Henry Bowers' uh, hair turns white, um, and Nadine Cross's hair in The Stand grows whiter and whiter. Number six is addiction and alcoholism. We've seen it with Jack Torrance, Eddie Dean, Andy McGee, Paul Sheldon, and later with Jamie Morton from Revival, Danny Torrance with Dr. Sleep. Number seven is evil in the corn. Um, we've seen it in Children of the Corn. We've seen it in The Stand. We've seen a uh, nightmare in Secret Window, Secret Garden. Here, Ardelia runs off into the corn and tempts Dave. Number eight is the evil's right-hand man. Um, we've seen it first with Straker. We've seen it with the Trash Can Man, with Buster Keaton and Ace Merrill. We've seen it with Henry Bowers. And here, um, Dave is Ardelia's right-hand man. And number nine is the prophetic dream. The prophetic dream is something that all of our Stephen King characters have. Um, is, you know, just the, the nightmare uh, from which they, they, they start to get symbols um, that they need to interpret in order to overcome the darkness. All right, everyone, so that is all I have for the library policeman. Um, so feel free to um, drop me a line at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And if you haven't done so already, feel free to uh, write a review and a subscription to iTunes. And you can follow me at uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Tumblr, all under Stephen Kingcast. And I will see you here, same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast. You took this book out in 1971. Yes, and I returned it in 1971. Yeah, 71. That was my first year on the job. Bad year for libraries. Bad year for America. Hippies burning library cards. Abby Hoffman telling everybody to steal books. I don't judge a man by the length of his hair, the kind of music he listens to. Rock was never my bag. But you put on a pair of shoes when you walk into the New York Public Library, fella. Look, Mr. Buckman. You're a comedian. You make people laugh. I try. You think this is all a big joke, don't you? don't. I saw you on TV once. I remembered your name from my list. I looked it up. Sure enough, it checked out. 
You think because you're a celebrity that somehow the law doesn't apply to you, that you're above the law? Certainly not. Well, let me tell you something funny, boy. <laughs> you know that little stamp? The one that says New York Public Library? Well, that may not mean anything to you, but that means a lot to me. One whole hell of a lot. Sure, go ahead, laugh if you want to. I've seen your type before. Flashy, making the scene, flaunting convention. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. What's this guy making such a big stink about old library books? Well, let me give you a hint, Junior. Maybe we can live without libraries, people like you and me, maybe. Sure, we're too old to change the world. But what about that kid sitting down, opening a book right now in a branch of the local library and finding drawings of peepees and wee-wees and a cat in the hat and the five Chinese brothers? Doesn't he deserve better? Look, if you think this is about overdue fines and missing books, you better think again. This is about that kid's right to read a book without getting his mind warped. Or... Maybe that turns you on, Seinfeld. Maybe that's how you get your kicks. You and your good time buddies. Well, I got a flash for you, Joy Boy. Party time is over. You got seven days, Seinfeld. That is one week. <laughs> <laughs>